Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to today's episode for Fifty Shades of Blue. On today's episode, I have a special friend of mine, uh, Andy Wankier. He and I have been good friends for a while. It's been over five years at this point. Uh, The reason why it's significant is because I wanted to bring Andy on to kind of talk about the complicated relationship that BYU has with the homosexual community and being a gay man himself, kind of explaining his perspective on that, his upbringing. He grew up in a very devout uh, family that was uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I thought his perspective was valuable. And Andy considers himself a member of the church still. Um, He has chosen to pursue a lifestyle that does not necessarily uh, reside in concert with the church. But regardless, I wanted to bring Andy on because I I love the guy. He's a good guy. He's really interesting to talk to. He's easy to talk to. He has great insights and perspective. Currently, Andy is actually living in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. He is, if he's not writing screenplays, he's actually a professor at UCLA and the New York Film Academy in Burbank, where he teaches writing courses and things like that. And specifically, his screenplay, that his latest screenplay has gotten a lot of attention and has won awards and been a finalist for some really, really competitive competitions. I know that sounds redundant. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, in other words, Andy's got some chops, and uh, I think his perspective is valuable, um, and I think he articulates it well, and I like this conversation because it's enlightening for both of us, and it kind of helps show that we can converse about these things. We can be opposed, different sides of the aisle, and still try and understand each other. And that's exactly what Andy's been helping me do. I hope I've been helping him the same way and without being patronizing or condescending or anything like that because these topics can be complicated, but we shouldn't ignore them. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, if you like it, obviously, like please share it with others. I think these can be valuable. I think it can be helpful. It can help people articulate kind of their mindset. Um, and uh, yeah, always open to feedback as well. So give me some suggest- suggestions on things to talk, cover, topics to talk about if you uh, have any. And uh, otherwise, just enjoy. Andy Wankier, not Wankier, not Vankier, but Wankier. Wankier. Yeah, Andy Wankier, my good friend. Um, we've known each other for a solid amount of years at this point. And um, you have quite the interesting experience kind of growing up in Utah, specifically being homosexual and everything, and then eventually making your way to California. You wanted to come on and we could discuss kind of some of this topics that I talked about on my blog post, which was essentially all spurred by what had transpired down at BYU campus with the rainbow lighting of the Y. Um, And I, I was especially curious. So when the fact that you suggested that we talk about this, I was, I was super excited about this. I'm really glad that you're taking the time to do this and I appreciate it. And I also very much value your perspective and your insights that extend well beyond this topic. I mean, you're my you're my Seinfeldian brother, as we all are aware. Yeah, I'm the Jerry and to your George, right? Or ex- that, no, that's exactly right. Or who's George in this situation? That's a good question, actually. What would you say? Oh, I don't know. People called me George in junior high. 
Yeah, my dad calls me Costanza <laughs> now and then. So I don't know. Maybe they're the same. They're the same. We're the George to each other's George. Oh, gosh. That just sounds chaotic. So destructive. <laughs> Serious. Anyway, um, so yeah, we've needless to say, we've formed a bond that really circulates around quite a bit of topics. We both We both like movies quite a bit. You, in particular, are out in California right now um, as a screenwriter. Uh, that's kind of what your goals and aspirations all circulate around, and you're doing a great job with that, I may add, because you specifically have a script that placed in the top 10 of a major competition that is nationwide, and that means basically that there's a lot of people now that are interested in your script and interested in your writing ability, so tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, and we'll also, with that, I want to kind of get your background in there too, because this is all kind of similar and circulating around the same thing. I'm using the word circulating a lot right now, and I don't know why, but we'll it's, it's a good address word. that. Multiple syllables. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, so, well, thank you. Uh, the script is uh, based on some events at BYU that are similar to what we'll be talking about, so that's also one of the reasons I felt compelled to uh, reach out. Uh, and it's the Academy Award, or the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, host uh, an annual screenwriting contest called the Nickel Fellowship. And last year they had a little over 7,800 entries. And yeah, mine was a finalist, so it was a top 10. So that was quite the honor. And a lot of important people are now reading this script in the industry that otherwise would never have heard of it. So that's pretty cool. That's, yeah, that's kind of what the, the gist of it that you gave me. And that it means basically that you're on the radar which is ex- extremely exciting for you down there. Um, the script, can I, name, can I name the title? Yeah, of course. Three Heavens, um, which is basically about, it's a, it's a fictional uh, story in which a student at a very well-known religious institution, private school, college level, uh, is threatened um, his standing in the school I believe well because like it, it, I think it kind of basically you could say this school represents kind of BYU in this situation I mean mistaken. in it's, the script it is BYU if I were looking, oh you actually named it BYU oh yeah for sure I mean it takes place in Provo oh I didn't know that in, if gotcha. it were okay. ever made into a movie if it were ever made they would probably change that but yeah writing the script I was you know, told by a lot of my mentors and teachers at UCLA to just keep it as BYU for now. Provide some context yeah, rather than a made-up university because it is about real events at BYU. Yeah, no, that's a good idea. I mean, it just it makes it a lot easier on the reader. Like, they don't have to really understand the background of the institution. BYU is a very well-known institution. Everybody knows it's essentially, quote, the Mormon school, right? With that comes a lot of different... Um, rules and you know, kind of like that higher code, the honor code, if you will. Um, yeah, exactly, and it gets some national that. attention. Yeah, there's no question. People know it as BYU. Rarely do they know Brigham Young University, but BYU it registers. Right, that's right. Um, and this, I mean, this script had to have come to mind. I would imagine, kind of, you were inspired because of your own upbringing in in Utah. Not not necessarily within your family, but just kind of living within the culture of the state of Utah, as well as the church, and being gay. So let's talk about that for a second. You 
grew up and you, you didn't come out of the closet until in your 20s. Oh, I know yeah, that, much, much later. Kinda, yeah, take us through that, like, teenage years and kind of when you, what your experiences were. Yeah, I mean, I moved to Utah when I was 11. My family, uh, both of my parents were from Utah. Lots of Mormon pioneers on my dad's side. My mom's family is all converts, but they always wanted to come back to Utah. So we did uh, right on the cusp of the teenage years. And that's also coincidentally the same time I started to realize, hmm, I don't think I'm straight. So that kind of added a lot of, I guess, pressure to myself to sort of try to conform as much as I could to the golden boy Mormon image. And which is one of the reasons I stayed in the closet for so long. I did the a lot of things that I could. I never did serve the mission, and that's because I had a lot of guilt about going through the temple, knowing that these feelings weren't resolved yet. So during that time, I did the conversion therapy, which didn't work, obviously. Or I guess what, what's that the, like, by the way? Can do you mind explaining that a little bit? And this is oh. more out of my own curiosity, but I imagine people listening to this would also be curious to hear a firsthand account. Oh first-hand account of what that might have been like. I mean, I didn't approach it from a religious point of view, like a lot of the people that I know who had to suffer through it. Uh, my, I told them I was not interested in praying, uh, praying away the gay. I wanted to approach it purely from a psychological or academic standpoint to see if there was any kind of trauma or any confusion. Uh, oh, so you never actually tried to pray the gay away? I did on a personal level. I wasn't going to do it there. Oh, He had a Book of Mormon Sorry. on the desk. I got... I did it through the church. I was about to. I was about to uh, be jokey about that, but oh. that you actually did it on a personal level kind of takes away from my jokes. Oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Miss the joke. Totally fine, dude. No, I'm, no, I'm that's on me. Jokes. Yeah, no, that's not true. But <laughs> anyway. But anyway. Sorry, I'll let you keep going. Yeah, so I wasn't particularly, luckily, traumatized by my experience. I came out of it feeling surprisingly affirmed that there was nothing wrong with me and that I was just this way. Most people I know who did it were pretty bruised by it. So, yeah, my own experience, blessedly, was not that traumatic. I came out of there feeling affirmed that this is who I am and there's nothing that happened to me that made me this way. And I've done everything realistically in my head I thought at the time that I could if I if it was changeable that it would have been changed most people I know unfortunately didn't come out so lucky a lot of them obviously are very bruised today have a lot of trauma from it a lot of them have committed suicide not ones that I know personally but you do read about that the psycholo- you kind of took the psychological approach that was around the mission age roughly for conversion therapy that you were trying around yeah I couldn't pinpoint it because maybe post mission Okay. Uh, I was in my 20s, maybe um, early to mid-20s. So, no, that was probably post-mission, of... but for sure. Gotcha. Just out of my own curiosity, were you, like, when you grew up in the state of Utah, you know, as a teenager, a teenager specifically, kind of like coming into your own hormones and everything, did you kind of always think that, like, well, I definitely have these feelings of same-sex attraction and whatever else and love and whatnot. Were you thinking that... I mean, at this point, I still plan on marrying a woman and just going to kind of see how that plays out and just go with that. Or what were, what were your thoughts then? I think the mentality for a lot of us is that this is a phase and you will eventually learn to like women or suddenly it'll just happen one day. Like there are barriers you'll just overcome. And you're also kind of reinforced that through a lot of 
if not some of your church leaders, just the Society of Utah. You hear that a lot. You read that a lot. A lot of the books that I read when I worked at Deseret Books spoke to that. So it was always something that's fixable. Right. Which, and fixable being a very, very subjective term in that regard, I'd imagine, right? Oh, yeah, it's extremely subjective. It's, uh, and the, when it doesn't happen, the more and more defeated you feel. Yeah. The farther away imagine. you feel than ever, honestly, from God. Yeah. Well, and even the term fixable, it probably comes across as offensive, quite frankly. Oh, well, I mean, that's my own terminology. I don't remember the... No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. I'm just kind of saying... What the wording like, those was in the like, books. Yeah. But anyway, um, so you grew up in Utah, around the culture, in a very active uh, member of the church family. Yeah, and all through my teenagers, yeah. That, one thing that I can specifically say about my own experiences with you and my conversations with you is that I've always appreciated that any issues or any criticisms that you've had towards the church never seemed unfair in my mind. You always seemed very objective in your own views and whatever your concerns might have been. It didn't seem like anything was cheap. And that's why I like talking to you about this a lot. I mean, I try to be the same way with things that I just don't know enough about or things that I do know about. Then I'll just say what I know and I won't actually expound from there because I just at the end of the day don't know. But um, you're, in other words, all this to say that your own experiences in Utah, in the church, and even BYU, which you didn't actually attend, but you know a lot of people that I didn't have get in on there. And, <laughs> oh, is that right? I didn't even know you applied, yeah. actually. Um, but all your feelings towards BYU have been and the church and all you and even Utah culture for the most part is relatively warm I'd say and maybe not even relatively like actually warm like you you have you have a reverence when you speak about these things is what I would say yeah I mean I love my upbringing for the most part I don't think the basic tenets of the church as an organization has ever really steered me wrong I yeah, I'm like you said, I, I don't live in Utah anymore. I miss Utah a lot. I miss my friends in Utah. When I came out, my Mormon friends were amazing. I didn't lose a single one of them. Nobody asked me any questions. Nobody pried. Nobody made me feel uncomfortable. Some people say dumb things, but that's regardless of your religion. People just never say the things you hope. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this out there, meaning like um Oh, oh, oh I out, always suspected it. Is that right? Did you get those? Yeah, from one of my friends. I kind of figured, oh, which enough. is, I guess, is okay. But at the time, you're like, that's not. No, yeah, but there's, like, do whatever you want, man. Just don't hit on me. Like, that probably oh, isn't the best response. <laughs> I did get that one, yeah, from somebody we both Is that know. right? Yeah. Ah, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, your experience has been obviously positive and not everybody's well, is so i'm not no, gonna sit here and be like well every sorry keep yeah i i think that my experience is different because for many years growing up my family didn't really attend church together uh, my dad's job took him away a lot and so my mom was sometimes with them regular church attendance as a family wasn't really a thing my sister went with her friends from school uh, so I just went to our home ward by myself because I wanted to. I got a job at Desert Book because I wanted Sundays off so I could participate in church. I read the Missionary Reference Library because I wanted to. I didn't look at it 
as a lot of uh, gay kids did as a way out or a fix. I did it just separate from that. So I don't know what compelled that. I guess it's always been a real strong reverence for the Mormon pioneers. And more than anything, when I think about that, I think of that just big legacy of strength. And there is something to be proud of that, regardless if you leave the church or not. I think that will always stay with you. That's in your blood. Oh, I don't think there's any question from what I, my own experiences with you that family's always been a big deal to you. And that even goes like extends all the way to genealogy and just kind of communities. And um, you're very loyal, for one, to not just your family, but the, to those people that you view kind of on that, you know, same mold where it's like they're the familiar people in your life, so to speak, are pretty much all family. And yeah, that's at least my experience with you. That's how I viewed you. And even the church, you know, is more or less a paternal relationship when you think about it. Yeah. And that's what my script yeah. really is about. It's not about vilifying one organization or one entity and lionizing another. It's all about broken people and how we deal with the systems that are around us. Which transitions us quite nicely into what took place at BYU on campus last week, right? I mean, when you talk about how we're essentially all products of a system, whether we like it or not, and whether or not that system happens to be more in line with our own beliefs and practices or not, we all have to deal with it to some degree or another. So a little background, obviously there was a, um, I, I believe the whole day was like an, I think they were commemorating an anniversary of some sort. I'm not positive on that. Maybe you can correct me if you remember. But it seemed like there were a lot of events going on last Thursday specifically on BYU campus for, by the LGBTQ community. And one of those events that they organized was to light up the Y with kind of the rainbow lighting to, to show. I, well, sorry, if you, can, if you want to intervene at any point, please do. All it was was a demonstration uh, that took place one year after BYU issued that letter clarifying the school's stance on same-sex relationships. Remember a year ago there was that confusion on whether uh, their LGBTQ student body could date one another, and the church stamped mm-hmm. that out pretty quickly. So this Yeah, was, within like a, a few days or a week at most, I think, if I remember right, right? Yeah, as quickly as they could, it felt like. It's because what had happened was that they reworded the language in the honor code to almost make it sound like it was okay for LGBTQ students to date each other and be in relationships while being students. But they never explicitly said that. And then when it was taken that way, and this is all my own, this is what I remember, so I could be mistaken, and I'm perfectly okay with that, and it's definitely possible. But they didn't actually explicitly come out and say that, but that was, and when you looked at the language that they took out, it certainly implied that. You can understand that. And so the community, the LGBTQ plus community took that and said, oh, like, look at that. It's like, we're slowly making strides here. And then right. within days, week at most, they came out and said, wait, no, let's clarify. This does not mean you can date. And it's kind of like, well, then what the hell was it? Like, I mean, because yeah, I understand was... the gripe. Like, to me, it's like, what are you going to, why are you making things more convoluted? Because we certainly need less of that. Right. I mean, gospel is already so much open to interpretation and just continuing to do that pattern is yo-yos people. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So that's a year anniversary from that. And one of those things, the the big event seemed to be that they lit up the Y with a rainbow. I think everybody's question immediately, was this sanctioned by BYU, right? Because they're thinking, what does that mean? Right. And um, it comes in the wake of the valedictorian speech that was sanctioned by the school in the summer. So there is room to believe that the school might have sanctioned that. And what was the speech? Remind us of that. He came out during his valedictorian speech. He just said he's a gay son of God, and he got a lot of attention nationally from that. He went on Good Morning America, The Ellen Show. The church has also seemingly had an evolving stance on how they view LGBTQ youth. They've donated sums of money recently for it, and they've made stances saying, uh, we still love all of our brothers and sisters, they even rescinded some of that policy from 2015. So it does feel like one step forward, two steps back sometimes. And I think that this this lighting of the why sort of speaks to that same frustration. Yeah, and we, we did touch on this a little bit because even when we were kind of planning this out, we had a, I mean, this is just emblematic of our relationship we called to kind of set up a time to talk about it for the podcast. And we ended up talking, I don't know if you noticed, but we ended up talking for two hours, dude. Oh, I noticed, Which, yeah. I mean, that... I had shit yeah, to do. Yeah, that is that <laughs> classic us, man. But, um, yeah, so we, ta- we kind of touched on this in that conversation, which was that when BYU... Like, you had noted specifically that you really, really felt like there was some, I guess in a sense animosity with the way BYU had tweeted out that and said this is not a sanctioned BYU event they came out right away that's all they said it was somewhat abrupt you're asking me if I felt that was animosity from the school or how it was received by everybody maybe animosity is a bad word but yeah I remember you expressing that you you didn't use the word animosity I'm I'm applying that term and I could be using it poorly here but you had mentioned how you didn't like BYU's response in that tweet that it seemed a little bit maybe callous or something or other like that it seemed abrupt and it seemed mishandled yeah. to me for a, an a institution of higher learning that people from all around the world go to that they would handle something without any nuance so quickly. Yeah, I would agree that the nuance, like, yeah, from a PR perspective, I would actually agree with you that it, it's always usually better to kind of just, you know, apply kind of a rhetoric that can be I don't know a little bit more warm pretty much in any context I really don't mean that like to make it seem like oh I just want them to make an exception here I think really ultimately from a PR standpoint it wouldn't hurt BYU and the church which by the way in my own mind has a kind of a notoriously bad PR department if you ask me but that's neither here nor there for now um but yeah I, I could I could see where you're coming from where it just kind of seemed like they could have at least, like moving forward, what I do think BYU has to do is now they have to basically make it very clear what is sanctioned and what is not sanctioned. Because there have been in the past tons of unsanctioned events that have taken place where BYU has not come out and said, this is not BYU sanctioned. Now, have they been as potentially as divisive, so to speak, as this last one? Maybe not quite that way. Maybe. Maybe maybe so. I don't know. But Regardless, I do think moving forward, BYU has to actually now, they've set that precedent, so they have to actually stay consistent in that regard. Yeah, I mean, and it's divisive to some, and I understand that. And that's honestly one of my big 
missions in life is to be a bridge builder with the Mormon community. That's why I'm never going to say, you know, church bad, we good, us versus them. I don't believe in that kind of messaging because if you don't work together, both sides just trample each other and then you're just worse off than when you started. If you want to have a table of healthy gay Mormons, you need straight Mormons at that table. Yeah, I absolutely, I think that's the right mindset. And that's, I mean, that's what makes you so easy to talk to in this regard. And I hope I can kind of apply the similar, similar sentiment from our side of the aisle, which is, you know, there's not to be cut off because at the end of the day, I don't let, I, I had mentioned this to you and I think this is important. I want to say this actually on the podcast at the end of the day, I can't definitively say everybody that's living the homosexual lifestyle is going to be condemned and not, in other words, what we believe specifically, and this is maybe lost on anybody that's not familiar with our church, but you know, we believe that the ultimate exaltation exists in the celestial kingdom and even the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Um, I, can I look at you, Andy, specifically and say, oh, yeah, sorry, you're not going to be able to make it to the celestial kingdom. Sorry, man. No, I, I don't know that. And I'm glad I don't know that. I take comfort in that fact. I don't, because everybody's going to be judged differently. And so for all I know, we could be there together someday. Like, we could be in the same realm of glory. I'm not, it's not my job to know. And I thank God for that regularly, because I don't want that burden on me to have to decide everybody's fate. That My only job is to try and be as loving as possible. And now, am I good at that? Of course not. Do I try every now and then? Do I try and be better every day? Yes, I can say that. And so that's what I do know, is that it's not my job to decide who goes where, and thank goodness, but it is my job to be loving and welcoming and just be worry about myself more than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Nobody knows, and that's kind of the point. Yeah, it is kind of the point. But let's talk about, I mean, how did, like, BYU arrive? How did the Mormon Church arrive at this situation and its stance on homosexuals? Uh, you may know more about that than me. I don't. I know I a mean, little bit. I, I'm sure it's just, a lot of people would, I would say initially, would just look to the church, right? Because yeah. BYU is no question an extension of the church. Right. And when I say homosexual, I use that, that's not a term I usually employ on a daily basis. I, it's more academic for me. Okay. Um, but it might surprise some to know that during the times of the pioneers and up until, you know, the 1940s, there were a lot of thriving gay Mormon relationships that were very well accepted into the Mormon community. And that's been documented in his book, Same Sex Dynamics, A Mormon Study. Michael Quinn or D. Michael Quinn points that out because we're such good rep record keepers. There is a lot of what he would call same-sex intimacy relationships that was normative in 19th century America. Things didn't really shift. It, there wasn't a prevalent homophobic shift in the United States until Alfred Kinsey's book in the 1948 that we entered that real conservative era. Even the word homosexual is a 20th century phenomenon. There wasn't a word for it before. People might have said, oh, fancy, he's fancy, or, you know, he doesn't, he, he, he beds with men. But there wasn't a term homosexual in the lexicon. Yeah, Kinsey, I, I did not know that. Yeah, and Kinsey kind of freaked out a lot of people 
because his book that he released suggested, quote, more than one male in three of persons that one may meet as he passes along the city street has at least had one homosexual experience. And so what a lot of people say he did is he forced the issue of homosexuality from an abstract concept to something that could be affected by anybody. And this whole contagious mindset kind of poisoned a lot of populations. This is in America. Now remember, there are other communities in the world that have had more sweeping uh, treatments of homosexuals throughout the years. In Europe, for example, in Germany, obviously homosexuals were put into the Holocaust concentration camps. Some places in the Middle East that, you know, unfortunately, treatment uh, and the stoning of homosexuals, gay people, gay men and women, trans people, still happens today. But I'm talking specifically about the American mindset. Because, the, you know, the church, the Mormon church often held is the American religion. I think one and two kind of go together. So it wasn't until after the Kinsey book was released that a real homophobic sweep across the country between the 40s and the 60s specifically really rose up and a lot of college campuses responded to that. And BYU was one of them. BYU was notorious during that time period for its practice of conversion and shock treatment for anybody who was even suspected to be gay. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been an American horror story, even mentioned in there. It's it's not something that's hidden. It, it happened. You know, if mm-hmm. I don't believe in cancel culture, we can't cancel the things that we don't like because we have to learn from those experiences. Yeah, I absolutely agree there. And I think it, the there is an argument that can be made that even even BYU to some degree has taken strides to kind of repent for some of the like the physical shock therapy and things like that of how they treated kind of the culture or how the culture treated homosexuals not just at BYU but even kind of peripherally associated with BYU or the church yeah now have they done enough I don't know that's not for me to answer that's I don't know I don't know but oh you know I haven't actually looked into that I didn't know that what do you mean Oh, that they've ever sort of made any kind of reparations. Well, I don't know if it's been direct. I'm just basing it off of kind of how they have tried to pivot a different way when it comes to just how they simply treat the homosexual community. Because yeah. there's no question that they've evolved in a better stance from from that era, as you're saying, kind of when there was that paradigm shift of homophobia um, and where we are now, I think. BYU has certainly been more welcoming in that regard, I think it's fair to say. Now, have they actually, made, and when I say repentance, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but I just really mean like shifting and, and, and trying to be less condemning in that regard. Because once again, it goes back to, you know, it's not really our, our decision to change these people. Right. And, you know, I'm not saying that everything was 100% A-OK 100 years ago. There were obviously issues because... Anybody who's not in a heteronormative relationship is always going to be viewed as different. So that there was probably oppression, and I might be understating it a little bit, but some of the research I've done, like into John Howard's book, Men Like That, even in, even in the you know, repressive cross-section of the United States, the American South, a lot of uh, gay relationships were seen fairly often. That's not... Um, I've never actually heard about that, but is that that's not uh, like 
John Howard Griffin by chance, is it? His name is John Howard. I have his book, Men Like That. Like that. Because there's a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's... I mean, because I'm assuming he's he's basically trying to highlight the gay experience in the South, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And I think specifically the gay male experience. So you don't get a lot of uh, documentation on how um, trans people or at least not from this book, or even um, lesbians were treated then. And the only reason I, and this is a little bit tangential, is because the John Howard Griffin wrote the book Black Like Me, which was kind of similar. He, uh, um, he, he had uh, tried to make himself look black, and he would, like spent like a week in the Deep South to try and feel like what it would be like to be oh, a yeah. black man in the South in the 50s, I believe. And so that's why it kind of sounded like that. And the guy's name is John Howard that you're talking about. And that's John Howard. Yeah, Griffin not the same dude. Book. So I was like, is that the Different same guy. guy? That's funny. Different guy. Very, you have very quite similar the, concepts, though. Quite the library to his name, if, if there were. Yeah, yeah right. But anyway, sorry, this... that was tangential. Well, it's interesting, though, because a lot of people today, we always want to believe we live in the most enlightened form of reality that we ever have. We've always been progressing, and that's not necessarily true. Things progress more dialectically. Like I've been, even with the church, like I've been talking about, it's always sort of been one or two steps forward, one or two steps back. Uh, but uh, American psychologist Jim Lowen, he calls this the chronological form of ethnocentrism, which we want to believe we've moved beyond our oppressive times and that we're not going to repeat them because we it, it is a form of ethnocentrism we believe we're more entitled we want to sequester these bad thoughts and put them in the past and i think that's why a lot of people even today when we talk about other social movements or even some of this at byu i think a lot of people who fall into the uh what do we call the dominant culture don't see that under the same lens and they like to believe we've moved past that yeah no and i think that's basically why the progressive movement exists right because they're trying to um essentially cure the current communities that they're in of any oppressive nature that they may espouse which oftentimes comes with it like looking towards the future yeah they're trying I... to guess essentially what will be viewed as oppression 20 years from now yeah, exactly. And a lot of people, and I used to be one of these people before I came out, or even before I moved to L.A., I didn't understand a lot of the delicate race relations. When you hear it, you sometimes think people are just crying wolf, or they're seeing things that aren't there because their mind is trained to see things that aren't there. But, based on my own personal experience, and now as a teacher at university, there are still real things happening and these movements exist because real things are happening and there are still oppressive forces enacting upon minority blocks. And you know, that's what our nation was founded upon. Why we want to sometimes just dismiss that, it, it now just blows my mind. I mean, we don't have to get the, into this right now, but when you say founded upon, what do you mean by that exactly? I mean, oh, we, I mean, get into this, but like, we don't have to go in this whole direction. Oh, I mean, just... Serious history of the United States, I mean, the people, the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, they were escaping oppression. The founding fathers uh, were fighting gotcha. oppression. So why we choose to believe we're a very young country. We're only planting our roots now if we're going to make it. If we think all oppression is over, I think then we have no more room, more, no more room for growth. We're just going to start decaying. 
Interesting. I've never really thought of it that way. It's no, no, no question. An interesting uh, perspective. Um, now, kind of building off of this, the so our conversation was spurred by kind of my angle on all this, which was a post yeah. that I wrote last week, and it was. <laughs> I wasn't commenting on the act itself of putting the rainbows on the Y. I wasn't commenting on BYU's response. I really wasn't commenting on the dynamic relationship that that is between those two parties. I was commenting on, and and I know you know this, I'm just kind of recapping it um, so we can kind of talk about this a little bit more, is that there's a lot of like this messaging that's pushed out there that's saying like let love win or just love one another or just do that this or the other all circulating around love right and i specifically saw two examples from the same person within minutes of each other where it was somebody saying hey byu why do you have to be like this just let love win and then they followed it up by and i know i'm kind of picking on one person here but the reason why I'm using this as an example was because of the contrast between the two messages that he had sent within minutes of each other. So, And it was a moment of weakness. He even came out and actually apologized for it, like on Monday. Oh, interesting. Or Sunday. Not that I would demand an apology. Everybody has moments of weakness. But he even recognized that what he was saying was, like, maybe over the top or whatever, and that he needs to kind of continue to learn, which I can appreciate. But at the same time, he didn't owe me an apology. So I wasn't, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, oh, good for him. I mean... Good for him and in, in the sense where it's like he's just trying to get better on his own, like in his own right, and that's fine. But, um, I mean, I used him as an example just because it was such a good blueprint of what I was trying to hit on, which was love that, love us or love this, don't be unloving. Right. And then what he followed that up with was, I can't wait until everybody comes around to our side and it's really going to bug me when that happens. And it's not that you guys finally have the revelation that you were looking for it just means that you're going to have a prophet that isn't homophobic anymore and my reception and this is the irony behind it but that's my the whole point that i'm making is my reception of that second tweet was like well that doesn't sound very loving to me and it could have been he could have been no i'm only saying this because i love you or whatever right that might be his version of love but that's the problem i think that we see on both sides right that's it's not clearly defined these lines aren't drawn there's not real clear objective standard of what love even means because a lot of times people are conflating love with acceptance. Right. And people say, well, if you loved me, you'd let me do this. And like all, I mean, specifically the gay students at BYU, they'd say if BYU loved us, they'd let us be gay and because and, that's what makes us happy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when you're part of a system, which was mentioned earlier in this episode, is that systems don't often allow you to necessarily be happy your way. Right. Now, happiness is also subjective, but systems basically command that you act in a specific manner in order to be a part of the system. And that's where that that dichotomy comes up between the two, because it's like, who's to say necessarily that BYU doesn't think they're being loving with all this? Because maybe BYU ultimately is saying, we do love you. You would be happier elsewhere because of these standards that we want you to hold. Now, if you can't hold them, that's fine. Don't come here we still love you like we still don't wish you ill we still don't condemn you for your actions but we want to be a specific community that has very specific values and we define normative behavior well, a very different way than you do anyway i so guess take it away from i guess the line i would maybe want to draw there and it could be it doesn't have to be a bold line but i feel like you can easily get away with what you're saying if you're a church when you're an institution of higher learning you're educating minds to be the best version of themselves. 
I think you get into a little bit muddier waters with love our way or the highway is essentially kind of what you're saying. If you don't want to practice... <laughs> and that's a good title. Where'd you, where'd you get that? <laughs> if you don't want to practice <laughs> what we um, instill, then you don't have to come here. And, you know, on paper, I 100% get that. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of 18-year-olds from very strong tied Mormon communities who were taught that BYU is the gold standard are always capable of maturity. We look back as adults and be like, oh yeah, why would they ever want to do that? Well, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. They probably go to that school thinking, and some of my friends have been told this, if you go to BYU, it will put you on the path to be straight. You will find your eternal partner if you go to BYU. You will find her at BYU. If you go on a mission, you'll be made whole. So you're getting a lot of messaging that if you do this, you will receive the kind of acceptance from God that has been kind of afforded to your friends. And I know what you're saying is that we're conflating this being able to do things as easier as our friends with being loved. But it does sort of feel that way because when you try and try and try and live your life to a certain standard and constantly fail... It's rejection is what it feels like. And I don't think anybody would say rejection is love. So take me through that really quickly, actually. So when you say try and try and try and keep failing, that's rejection. So yeah, when you go, if to you were to break this therapy. down. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you feel like, like, well, obviously that didn't work because I am a certain way and nothing, nothing can convert me otherwise. That's I understand yeah. your mindset there. That makes sense to me. But I mean, I guess the the nuance behind this, what I'm trying to articulate right now, and I'm actually kind of having a hard time articulating this, is that your desire there is to be a part of a system, mm-hmm. right? That's where the that's where the desire to even take conversion therapy took play, like came right. into play, and and when you were when you had the realization that this is not this isn't for me because I am a certain way and nobody can help me see otherwise because I was made and built a certain way right. um, then that feels like rejection to be well because I guess because you even said that your friends were actually very positive about you coming out and they were very welcoming and they love you you didn't lose a single one so right. clearly you weren't rejected in that system right no I wasn't rejected on a community level it was more of a rejection of a higher order is what it felt like and explain higher order specifically. And I, by the way, just to make it clear, I didn't really get a lot of healing until after I came out. Luckily for me, because I surrounded myself with good people, I was able to heal. A lot of people aren't in that same situation. A lot of people, when they I, out, I would, I'm sure that's true. Yeah, it, it, it stings worse. A, a lot of these BYU students, there's a difference. Like you said, it's yeah there's a certain code that everybody has to adhere to but there are harsher consequences for those who are a certain way and that's undeniable the security that maybe not to speculate but there are some straight friends who choose to leave BYU who get kicked out of BYU from what I can tell in my own private research that I did for my script none of them were as severe as the consequences that if you were gay and kicked out of BYU. Some of them don't even want to tell their families what happened, so they move away. And one young man moved away into a trailer and lived in a driveway and had to find a new job. 
uh, because he lost his job. His job was provided by the school. He lost his housing. He, they also have a history of freezing records, so you can't even transfer your credits that you paid for and earned. So, yeah, that sounds terrible. I, I mean, there's at its on its face, like that's not. And I guess that's where the muddiness comes into play, like you're talking about, as an institution of higher learning. Like, I guess technically they can do that, sure, but should they? Is that something that is deemed Christ-like? I personally would say no. It's definitely not a rule that's on paper there, but it has happened. That's what my script is about, is a kid who's dealing with the honor code who's threatening to freeze his record so he can't graduate or even transfer. I have friends who at BYU printed their transcripts every semester just in case. Yeah. And th- to your point, that doesn't seem very loving. I would agree. I mean, it's all it's all subjective, but even at an objective level, I think you're right. Like when they say like not only can you not go here, but we want to make it as hard as possible to survive after you leave this institution. Like that sounds that sounds pretty uh pretty scathing stuff, right? Like that's that's not loving. I I would I would if I were to apply christ-like attributes to that situation i can't see somebody like christ doing that personally that's my version of christ at least but so i totally get what you're saying and and there are those experiences and they have happened and there's no excuse for that and you would like to think that byu has learned from that who knows because as you said there was nothing on the books before that actually said this is a rule but it did exist so how can they go on record saying this doesn't happen anymore well, I mean, I don't know if they ever will. Maybe they don't need to, but they could. For me, it would be nice not to see short tweets saying, we did not sanction this. I don't also think that's very loving. Yeah, and tell me, actually, curious, what what would you prefer that they did or didn't do? I mean, there's a lot that they probably needed to take into consideration before doing that, because even the students who did it said, this isn't a protest, this is just a demonstration to help others on campus who feel like they don't have a prayer in the world to know and look up and see the why in a rainbow, that it they matter. That's all they were trying to do. I understand that if it's not sanctioned, like there are rules that the school can enact. That doesn't necessarily mean they have to, especially when they're not doing any harm to anybody. One of the things that I was so shocked by was the response to your article. How people were saying, this is getting ridiculous. I can't believe they're asking for this. When I'm, In my mind, I'm just like, what are they asking for? Like, what are they taking away from? They're not asking for anything that comes at a cost to you at all, other than maybe a challenge of the way that you see things. And if we're not going to challenge the way we see things, like I said, that's just living in a state of decay and death. The stagnation. No, yeah, I stagnation is death that, to me. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a fair assessment of the situation because I would agree. I mean, here I am challenging it as well from my own standpoint, right? I'm sitting here thinking, like, what is this? And and they say it was not a form of protest, but a form of like, uh, sorry, what was the word you used? That they, they used even as well? They said like a demonstration of healing because of the one year mark. And maybe they thought that because they sanctioned that valedictorian speech that the school, and I think the whole, what was the impetus that even led to this? Didn't the school say something about it's okay to have gay groups that are off campus or something like that? I actually wouldn't know at all. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but that's what I understood. So it was almost like a celebration. I could have that context completely out of line, but... 
Yeah, I'm not sure on that either. But um, so I guess an interesting question for everybody to ask on at least the the people that saw it as a protest where it wasn't a protest and it was a demonstration of healing is okay if this is if this is what they want it to be a demonstration of healing like my views on that are that like what are the questions they have and that's where where I think it's important because if they don't believe it well then look into it don't just right. sit there and say this is all part of like this deeper agenda to turn BYU gay because I don't think anyone really believes yeah, that. Yeah, but that's not what we, anybody wants. They don't. I don't think anybody, yeah. as far as I know, the struggle of growing up with that is not something you would wish on your worst enemy. So we're not seeking to turn anybody gay. Yeah, they're just seeking understanding. I, I, I think a lot of people are confusing things. I don't think it is a time to be asking questions right away. It's a time just for listening. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's fair. And like, I, I say that as somebody that's asking a lot of questions, but at the same time, I do like to think my approach is ask and listen. I think that's important. I, I, I don't just like. Yeah, you're sit probably there right. Th- I mean, I just feel most people ask questions for to respond without listening than to understand. Hundred percent agree with you there. Definitely agree with you there. That's, that's some of the questions that I got. I engaged on your on your thread, and I was never. I got asked question after question. When I answered them, they didn't respond to my answers. They just asked me more questions. They didn't want to know. Yeah. Not all of them. I mean, not everybody, obviously, because you have a a fair mix of responses. But some of them were very stubborn. Oh, there's no surprise. I mean, it's a day ending on why, and it's a Facebook post. That's true. I mean, know the context. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I actually set out every single one of those i responded to anybody that took issue with it or not even that I, that's probably even being too harsh anybody that had any questions that's really what it was or hey maybe you're not seeing this side i responded to every single one of those right because i didn't want to when i put myself into a public forum like that is what i'm doing i'm putting myself up for scrutiny i 100 percent acknowledge that i'm not going to sit there and be like oh how dare you have any problem with what i say it's like no i signed up for this like whether directly or indirectly and so anybody that had a response was, um, well, I, I, I respected it, you know. And, and a lot of times what people were trying to do was trying to pull me a specific way and saying, well, I think you're missing this point. And I think what they were doing is that they were applying kind of a, like they were zooming out a little bit and assuming that I was saying more than what I was actually saying, which was I was really just talking about the nuance of how love is given versus how love is received. Right. And that, I think is one of the biggest disagreements that both sides are seeing right now is that both sides are demanding a specific type of love and neither side is really uh, applying that context to their type of love. The message that I would agree with that I do think sometimes people fail to understand when we do say love is love, love wins, is just that there is no side. Love is the same love that we want that you have. We're not asking you to change your definition of love, except for maybe the, what you know love to be can exist between two people that are not just a man and a woman. Yeah, I mean, I, wouldn't necessarily, I wasn't even necessarily saying that people are trying to change definitions of love. I think that people already have different definitions of love, and that's where the discrepancy comes into play. Yeah, and then, you know, I've been advised by some of my friends who I asked about this, who study psychology and and therapy, and 
everybody's going to have a different definition of love, just like you said. So getting into the debate of the semantics of what that means can be problematic. And the messaging, you know, that guy who made that tweet that you criticized was a little bit contradictory. And there is sometimes, I don't like seeing that, I see all the time from both sides uh, during the election. It was always, how dare you tell people how to feel? You should be ashamed. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Right. Um, and I, here's the thing, like, it, it can get problematic trying to define it, but I think acknowledging it is actually pretty important, just that the difference exists, right? Because if you don't clearly define your terms of, of love, like saying that what they say when they say be, be loving is like, like I had said before, one example I gave to you while we were on the phone the other day was that, um, and this is not me trying to minimize anything. It's not a direct application, obviously, of what right. had happened at BYU specifically last week. But it's just an example of how love is manifest in certain households in this example, which is yeah. there are plenty of parents out there who have dealt with problematic children, whether that, whatever degree that may be. Like one that's easy to point to is like a drug, a drug addict son or whatever. Maybe not addict because at that age it may not be as easy to be an addict. But somebody that's struggling with drugs time and time again and they say listen you got to leave because obviously we feel like we're enabling you here and we don't want to be a part of that we love you and we want the best for you but you're refusing to go to rehab or refusing to get help and to stop this behavior any chance so you have to go and we do that out of love i think that's possible and i only say that i'm not saying that at all to apply to the situation with anybody in any gay context whatsoever i'm not using that example i'm strictly speaking to the nuances of love and right. how it's given versus how it's received right because that son or that teenage boy may not feel loved at all by his parents and you can kind of understand that too like you can understand both sides it's interesting um well i mean i think just saying that there's no one definition of love i mean if if we want mormons to understand that we can just apply that to the polygamists and that's the oppression that the mormon pioneers had to move around city to city because they wanted to love the certain way that the government wouldn't let them. They tried to get them to understand. Joseph yeah. Smith ran for president to get them to understand. Didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was it was his run for president uh, based on, like, was the premise of polygamy? I, I don't was, know if uh, it was based on that solely, but it was, I'm sure his presidency would have <laughs> legalized a lot of things that would have made life easier his for his people. Maybe. Fair enough. Um, yeah, uh, I do want to highlight your, uh, your very first comment on my post. Yeah. Do you remember what you said? Shouldn't you be out on a ledge somewhere? (laughs) Of course I said that. (laughs) That was good, man. I laughed immediately when I saw it. I knew you would. I was wondering if you got it because it is an older Seinfeld reference and you, I know you don't love season two or three. Uh, I, I still love them, but I don't love them as much as the 789. Now, what is love in this sense? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how Seinfeld seasons 2, 3, and 4 receive that love. Yeah, I mean, there are songs different. about that. Like you just said, what is love? <laughs> Lady, don't hurt me. That's right. Andy, I think we're about to come to a close here, but I I feel very fulfilled with this. I really do. And I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk about this and give a different perspective because I really do value it. And I think you, you're easy to talk to, you have good insights and your experience 
is extremely valuable in this situation to help people like me and a lot of um, members of my community to kind of see your side and how you think these things through because I really do believe for the most part on both sides it's just a lack of understanding that gets us into trouble more than anything else because all you really see is the vitriol from both sides I that's think so too get, that's what gets highlighted and so conversations like these are extremely important and I and I'm really really glad that you suggested this and I couldn't be happier about it and and I want you on on different on episodes down the line we've already yeah, tried before but I've had editing nightmares and we could talk more Seinfeld and whatever else and your experiences in California and everything and the dating scene down there and everything so yeah, you're always great to talk to Andy it's bad everywhere you go that dating scene I think me and you have watched so much Seinfeld we've fulfilled it <laughs> we have I think we have it's, it, it particularly hurts when you're watching Seinfeld and you realize whether or not it's true the age of their characters at the very least are like our age and you're like oh, I know no. I think I'm older than some of them were <laughs> in some of the seasons I watch now and it's pretty sad it's, isn't it unsettling yeah but to reiterate your point yeah. I mean I believe in conversation I don't want I'm here to learn too I'm not interested in just telling my point of view and saying if you come to my table these are the rules we're imparting that's not how it works no I, so I, what, I have no question of that yeah what your your, def, your question of like what does love means is something I've been thinking about a lot. Well, I'm glad. I've been thinking about it a lot too. And that's kind of what I was really trying to spur more than anything is that people like how we all define it really matters and it, and it matters in our actions and it's never more apparent than in our actions. So, yeah, I mean those books written the love languages and then 20 other books you could read today. Exactly. All right, man. Well, really, thank you again, and we'll go ahead and wrap it up. All righty. Thanks for having me on the and show. Good luck with everything. Of course, yeah, and good luck with the script, and obviously you'll keep me posted on that and kind of your dealings down there. And, and oh, I'll absolutely. And be happier and more excited for you. Yeah, absolutely. I will keep you posted for sure. Awesome. Well, you take care and have a good one. All right, you too. To a different time. Old love. I remember falling so mad. Been magic in the valley and a rhythm in the night. Cause I could almost see it. Did you fade right out of you? If it takes time.